Hey everyone, this is Charlie Levine, editor of Angler's Journal Magazine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by, yep, Angler's Journal. If you're interested in a magazine with uh, a different take on writing about fishing, not so much about how to rig baits or tie flies, but actually the reasons why we fish and all the passionate people who do it, uh, beautiful photography, make sure to run over to anglersjournal.com and pick up a subscription. Uh, today, we're joined by one of our longtime writers, a very prolific writer who's always doing interesting projects and spent a long time as the outdoor editor for the New York Times, Mr. Peter Kaminsky. Peter, thank you so much. You betcha. Actually, um, uh, I wrote my outdoors column appeared in the New York Times over many years. I was one of a number of you know writers. Um, over 100 columns appeared. Yeah, that was a. Uh, it came out multiple times a week, didn't it? For many, many years. Well, Nelson Bryant wrote it three times a week. Okay. And Nelson was cutting back. They asked Nick Lyons to step in, which he did for a little bit, but it, he he had a lot of commitments, uh, and so he recommended me to them. So it never it never appeared uh, three times a week after that. I think I've written most of the ones in the last 35 years, but Pete Bodo wrote a number. Steve Sautner did. Uh, I think Tom McGuane may have written a couple. Some but, fantastic writers and, and Nelson, especially too. I yeah, mean, he he yeah. did a fantastic job. And I grew up in Connecticut and uh, we always got that paper and, you know, Back in the 80s when I was a kid, I mean, that's where you got a lot of this information. All the major papers used to have an outdoor writer, you know, even the New Haven Register did and a lot of great writers in New Jersey. And I mean, Lefty Cray was an outdoor editor. It was sort of an institution. It was uh, you had some big shoes to fill there back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's it's the happiest writing uh, episode in my life. They pretty much let me write what I wanted. Uh, they didn't edit it much for the most part. That was good, except like, you know, when I wrote no kill and they cut the word no for space, <laughs> um, but you know, it was a really a glor glorious thing. And they let me use first names. I didn't have to write, you know, Mr. Cray or, you know, Miss, Mr. Dixon. Sure. And I'm sure you got to meet so many, uh, interesting anglers of all walks, uh, through that, through that oh, column. It it was a great door opener. It really was. I mean, that, that was the major reason to do it. I think, uh, just the door, the angling doors that opened, I mean, the pay wasn't particularly much to write home about. Yeah. But for someone who loves the outdoors and, and I mean, you get to reach a, a massive audience through that, uh, that paper. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, as you know, you're writers, you're sort of you're, you're at home in front of your typewriter. You don't, you're not really plugged into the world. And then this thing appears out there. And when I know you'll want to get to this later, but when in this last book that I put together, this collection of essays, uh, I just sent out uh, query letters uh, to people I'd never met. But they had read the column and. Uh, so it has it has tremendous reach. I mean, Carl Hyacin came in and Rachel yeah. Maddow. It's by no means all famous writers, but I was surprised uh, how nicely that fell into line. Yeah, that's that's got to feel great. And um, so the book, 
Catch of a Lifetime, Moments of Fly Fishing Glory is different than your other books. Like you say, it's a you've brought together all these different writers to tell some of their stories and you manage to get them to keep it short, which is as a writer, I find it's uh, harder to write short more often than it is to kind of go long. And you did really pull in a unique collection of voices, um, some very big weight names in the fishing world, uh, like John McPhee and like you mentioned, Carl Hyacin, and then Rachel Maddow, like who the heck knew she was a angler? I guess you did. <laughs> well, no, yeah, you, you're reading along here and there in the real world and you all of a sudden you, you see fly fishing and I went, oh, so for example, I, I never met Rachel Maddow. Um, and if you go through the producers or the PR people, uh, it's hard to get to anybody famous. But I wrote to her literary agent. I, I found out who that was. And I sent a note out. I sent it out to a number of famous people. Uh, I didn't get answers from a lot. And Rachel's, you know, I figured, all right, a couple of months, I didn't hear back. You know, I wasted a postage stamp. <laughs> and in comes this really beautifully written essay. So, yeah, it was really, it was very gratifying. Well, it's nice to see, you know, and I think at Angler's Journal, we try to capture this too, about just how fishing touches all kinds of people. And and it seems like you were capturing a lot of that in your new book. Yeah, yeah. How did you first get into fly fishing? Well, I start. How did I get? The way I got into fly fishing was I started fishing. I was an editor at the National Lampoon, which was a completely crazed, uh, substance-addled place. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk about that. <laughs> and. Uh, I took a vacation in Florida with my girlfriend um, in the Keys, just because it seemed like the Bahamas, but you could drive there. And it was cold. And I went on a party boat one day for nine bucks and caught a couple of 30-pound groupers. I said, I love fishing. <laughs> that was it. So that, that summer, I fished a lot with bait, You know, drowned a lot of sawbellies in the Ashokan Reservoir. I think I caught one smallmouth. And that winter, we were in the Yucatan. Uh, and this, this is before like Tulum or anything had happened. And we just stumbled into the Boca pilot fishing camp. And I just, I liked it. So we stayed and I was fishing with a spinning rod and shrimp. And that's the first time I saw fly fishing. These, these American guys were there. And I said, this is really cool. Came back to New York and, uh, a friend, Jeff Norman, who was at Esquire, uh, said well if you want fly fish come up let's go up to the beaver kill and i'll show you some and we did and i saw this guy casting catching a, a nice fish by you know a bridge uh um support uh where there's always a fish on every stream and it turned out to be doug swisher mm. uh, and uh, and he was giving a casting clinic for two days so i signed up that was invaluable and, and in fact when people Ask me uh, how to start fly fishing. I said two days of casting lessons. You know, that's the only way to start. I think you know, you just get over the hump of getting physically getting that line out there. Sure. Uh, and uh, so it, it sort of took over my life. I just loved it so much. And so when I left Lampoon, I needed to make a living, and uh, I started writing for the outdoor magazines. You know, 
my profile is a little bit different than the average, you know, contributor to field and stream in those years. So uh, they welcomed me and, and outdoor life, uh, sports and field. And so that's how it started. Yeah. Wow. And that's when those magazines were really powerful. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think field and stream had two million uh, at the time. I think outdoor life was a million and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're so smart and you're always um, you have a unique way of telling stories. It's not just about hook, fish, line, right? It's about the place. And you spent so much time in Argentina and Montauk and you through your writing, uh, you really capture place very well. I've always enjoyed that about your story. Thanks, mate. Um, and your another book you wrote, uh, Moon Pulled Up an Acre of Bass, was about a season you spent in Montauk uh, chasing striped bass, which is another big love of yours. And curious how how you decided to do that and um, got someone to actually pick that up and, and go with it. Well, so my, uh, I guess I had ghostwritten something at, at the time. Uh, the uh, Jim McCann, the guy who did One Eight Hundred Flowers, I wrote his book, and I was having lunch with my uh, agent, and uh, he said, "If you could do anything, what would you like to do?" So, I told him that I'd been out on the East End uh, bird hunting, and uh, there was this these fields in uh, Sagaponic. Um, where uh, was well, my buddy Doug Rensel? He had been a hippie cab driver like me, and he lived out there. And we were hunting pheasant, and uh, we chased him across this field to the top of a dune that led down to the ocean. And we, when we crested the dune, I just saw a two-mile convoy of uh, wildfowl, and I saw a whale breaching, and I saw a crazy blitz. Wow. Gullens diving. And I said, well, this is nature rioting. <laughs> and uh, so I started to uh, fish uh, that, that, that those blitzes. So, and so I told my agent, well, if I could do anything, if you gave me the money, if I could do anything I wanted, I'd like to write about, you know, the fall run in Montauk. Um, and lo and behold, he got me enough money to do it. And uh, so I spent, I, I think I started like this third week of September and I fished till the end of November, pretty much every day. Uh, I had to take a few days off for a television show that I was doing with my brother, uh, but pretty much every day. And it was a great year. Uh, and the interesting thing, that was 1999. Now, the, it's interesting because the year before I had been working on a, a cookbook, uh, the elements of taste, and uh, uh, a buddy lent that lent us a house on the beach in uh, Wainscott, and I said, three weeks out there, man, I'm going to catch fish. Never saw anything. It just the fish just like made a big detour. But '99 happened to be a year of really great fish. Oh yeah, so I was lucky that the subject cooperated. Well, that's yeah, that's pretty magical, and you did it all with a fly rod. Oh, yeah. So to fish in the surf is hard enough. <laughs> to 
to be throwing a fly rod, you really have to be in it to, to, to connect. And, um, but I guess that's, that's all part of the experience. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, I, you know, I can remember days like on the beach at Montauk when there'd be, you know, a line of people slinging metal and, and, and bait and stuff. And, uh, I, I I'd be catching a lot of fish like on surf candy candies and uh I was the only one catching so there are times I mean there's physical challenges to fly fishing but if the fish are in castable range there are times when you're going to fish anybody with a fly rod oh yeah oh that's really cool and I mean so how do you go from being a, a hippie cab driver as you say to working for National Lampoon Magazine. How, how the heck did you manage that? Well, I after driving a cab, I, I went back to grad school in anthropology. I'd studied history at Princeton. And uh, I, I, I guess the classical discipline of history left a lot of questions unanswered. And I, I, I thought cultural anthropology um, was did. So I spent a few years working on a PhD, but I didn't have a quarter and no one, I mean, I did very well in school, but no one was getting hired anywhere. Um, and I said, well, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. And uh, through a friend of a friend, I, I, I thought I'd get a job in advertising. So I wrote some ads and through a friend of a friend it landed at the publishers of Lampoon. That was Jerry Taylor. And he said, well, why don't you come and you know, write my publisher's letter. So, I started out uh, as a flack in the on the advertising side, but pretty soon, uh, and became evident that my talents, such as they were, lay more on the editorial side. So, that that's what I did. I joined there, and I was uh, I, uh, I eventually became managing editor, and uh, it was a, it was a, it was a an interesting experience. Oh, wow. I mean, and the characters, the cast of characters that went through that place must have been uh, something. Doug, what what was the editor's name? Doug? Doug Kenny. Doug, Doug Kenny. Kenny. Henry Beard. And uh, then, of course, the radio. And they, they wrote Animal House, right? Doug, Doug Harold Ramis and Chris Miller wrote Animal House. Wow. Yeah. And I would imagine uh, a lot of those characters, like, Gilda and, and Belushi. I mean, were those guys hanging around? Oh yeah, they they were on the Chris Guest, uh, Gilda. They were on the radio hour, and uh, you know we we had we, uh, the editors' lounge there, which was a pretty crummy couch, <laughs> uh, and a couple of chairs, and we basically we we sat around there all day and you know try to make each other laugh. And if anyone was had particularly weak character armor that day, we'd smell blood in the water and you'd all hang up on that person. Oh my gosh. I bet that was a lot of fun. And 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 still meeting deadlines and putting out really great content and funny stuff. And you have a big love of humor. Uh your brother and yourself started the Mark Twain Award, isn't that right? Yeah. The Mark Twain Prize at the Kennedy Center. Yeah, we did that for 20 years. And I was looking at the people who've received that award. Holy smokes. Um, you know, Chappelle, Richard Pryor. I mean, all kinds of famous. Bob Newhart, Bill Murray. Uh, Everybody. Carol Burnett. Yeah. And you, 
so how how did i mean what is it like rubbing elbows with these people are they just regular old folk or no <laughs> stars are stars you know stars are the center of their own universe um and uh some are easier some are tougher to work with uh as as years went by, you know, more and more layers of publicists uh, and entourage sprung up around people, and uh, it, it, it was hard to get to them. In most cases, though, once we got through and we sat down with them for an hour or two, uh, you know, they knew what to expect and what we would like them to do. We wanted everyone to be funny. We didn't want it to be an I Love You Man award show. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I'd say we, we hit eight, eight out of ten on on that. Some some of them, I tried to have people write their own stuff, or I would work with them. We had a couple of great writers as well, uh, and for the most part, that worked out. But there's some classic pieces. Larry David did his own uh, when Steve Steve Martin was our honoree. That that was amazing. John Lovitz was great. Will Ferrell's acceptance speech was fabulous um so it it was you know you know nine months of trying to pierce you know uh the showbiz armor around everybody and get them to engage and then you know three months to make in a show wow that sounds like a very challenging yet fun endeavor <laughs> and yeah, it was both it was definitely both i could imagine and but i as just as a guy who you know i'm love to fish i love food and i love to laugh and it's like you've done all these great projects in those three arenas um yeah i have been quite fortunate <laughs> the food stuff so you've done you've worked with a lot of chefs and you've written a bunch of cookbooks and i guess like how did you did you sense that you know the food world was coming on with that or was it just something that you said you know you saw the power food has and you were like this is another thing i want to start writing about well actually uh well i've always cooked always enjoyed cooking um but one year i did a series in the times called a season on the harbor i was inspired by joseph mitchell's uh essay in the late 40s the bottom of the harbor about the life and and history of new york city waters so every month i'd fish a different place and uh the last um the last installment i went fishing for blackfish <clears throat> a tautog with my daughter lucy on a headboat out of sheepshead bay um and uh, our neighbor along the rail there was a guy named eddie dulls who was the walrus uh, keeper at the coney islands aquarium and he fished with a big Bakelite reel. And uh, he showed us what to do. Um, uh, I, there weren't many people paying customers on the boat who were fishing. They were down below playing like, you know, penny a point, pinochle. Um, but we fished the day away, caught a bunch of fish. And then Michael Lomonaco uh, was the chef at 21 Club. He, he later was the guy at Windows on the World who went to get his glasses that morning on 9-11 and wow. didn't go to the top. Anyway, I knew Mike through a mutual 
friend and it was all about fishing I knew him I wasn't in the food world and uh I had given him some advice about equipment he wanted to take his son fishing and uh so anyway I caught these uh blackfish I was having uh Christmas lunch which I did every year with my college roommate Vinnie Farrell and uh so I called up Michael and I said uh, I have all these blackfish if I bring them in, can you make them? And you can you can sell the the rest of them. So I show up there with my little igloo at Twenty One Club, which was you know a pretty upper crust place. And I, I remember I'm waiting to uh, um, check my coat, and Frank Gifford is standing behind me with his lunch date, Ethel Kennedy. And oh jeez. So <laughs> he, he says, "Would you bring your lunch?" And I said, "Matter of fact, I did." And he said, what is it? It turns out he lived like in Greenwich and, uh, you know, um, on the sound. And he was a striper fisherman. So we talked. Hmm. I, anyway, I wrote the piece and it was half about being on the boat with my kid and half about my experience at 21 Club. And the Times gave it like two thirds of a page. I mean, which is enormous sure. for an outdoors uh, piece. And I got so much response there a light bulb went off. There are more people who eat than who fish. Yeah. And so I just started, you know, writing about food. Oh, that's so cool. You know, I've always loved to cook as well. And I worked in restaurants a lot in college and stuff. And uh, I guess I never realized back then that you could be the, like a celebrity chef. That The whole thing didn't really exist then. Right. I, I wonder now if I had known what you could do with food if I would have stayed in it. Cause I, I really loved it. Uh, you learn a lot working in restaurants. It could be a lot of fun. Um, but that's, that's quite a story. And it's, it's so wild to me how many chefs love to fish. I mean, can you, what's the, I guess there's so many of all different occupations who love to, chef, to fish, but especially these chefs. Well, listen, their urge to fish and to hunt, starts with the need for food and everybody has that so i, I mean I, I think it's a very strong drive in people um and i i mean people who who choose to go into cooking and, and becoming a chef you know they express that professionally that drive for food so it's kind of a cousin of that so uh, I, i've always been interested also um, oh, 25 or so years ago, I wrote uh, a cover story for New York Magazine about the opening of Gramercy Tavern. And I spent a year doing this, not the whole year, but it took a year to put the piece together. And the the, the chef, when, the, when it opened, was Tom Colicchio, who people, pro uh, listeners probably know from Top Chef. Sure. And uh, so we became friendly. And I remember... We used to, uh, he, he used to try dishes out, but his, when he lived on 55th Street at the time, and we test some wines. I remember the first time I went to his apartment, and, you know, he's rattling pans in the kitchen, and I noticed some flies and a, and a vice, and they were really beautifully Catskill, you know, sparsely tied flies. And that was the first time I realized, uh, I guess after I wrote about it a bit, I, I, I realized when you work with food, 
or when you tie flies, uh, you are often working with uh, organic material. Yeah, and your hands, you know. It's, yeah, but it's also not like a shop manual. You do three turns to the left, you know. You have to feel your way through the feathers. You have to spread the, the deer hair, you know, and that's working with organic things that respond differently, and you have to respond to them. So I think fish, the art of cooking and of uh, at least tying flies uh, are, are like in that way. They share that impulse uh, of dealing with, you know, natural things. Uh, you know, and fly tying, now we have synthetics, but they behave, behave like, you know, polar, polar bear hair. And then the other thing, as the years went by, that I realized about cooking and fly fishing. Um, you know, Matthias Wilhelm, do you ever see him on Instagram? Uh, he's a great caster. In fact, he's too great. I hate how great he casts. <laughs> but I think he says, you know, people, something like when people, it's people think when they let go of the fly, uh, you know, of the line, uh, you know, they've done the job, but actually they've just started. Really what you're trying to affect is what happens at the end of the line, you know, how that fly lands and how it behaves in the water. And I think that's like cooking too. People think when they follow a recipe that you just do steps one through nine with the quantities, they say, leave it in the oven that amount of time. And it's no, you have to you have to think, and this is what chefs do. What happens when heat hits that food, and the way it hits it? And I think a similar thing is required to be a successful fly fisherman. Not how do I deliver it? That's taken for granted. Uh, but how does that fly behave when it gets in front of a fish so it'll entice it into taking it? So there's a lot of similarities um, between those two worlds. Wow. I think you should write that. This sounds like a great story for uh, Angler's Journal magazine. I think you should explore that. Okay. <laughs> Another chef buddy of yours is uh, Ned uh, Baldwin, who you wrote yeah. a great piece for us about. Um, and he's a big fisherman too. And uh, you guys have spent a lot of time together and you've written cookbooks with him. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, I, I, I've i written, I, I think, 18 or 19 cookbooks and I, I get the most famous one is seven fires that i did with francis mom in the argentine uh fire cookery um, guru uh there are two just as at least in my cooking uh in cooking in general i think are that i've done that are i think so just wonderful one was called the elements of taste with a chef named gray coons who, he died a few years ago during COVID. And he's probably the most talented or had the most tools at his command of any chef I ever knew. He was a four-star chef for the New York Times. There aren't many of them. But he'd grown up in Singapore on an alley where there were a lot of Indian spice grinders. So he knew all that stuff. Like, not from a book. He knew it intimately. Then he went to, uh, he, he was in the hotel school uh, in Lausanne, which is in Switzerland, which is a big place. And he went to work for Freddy Girardet. Seven years, became his chef de cuisine. And Freddy had the top Michelin rated restaurant in the world then. So he had the French thing down. And then he went to Hong Kong, learned Chinese and spent six years in the 
as the chef, I think, in the peninsula. So he had command of French, Indian, and Chinese. So it was all his natural language. He was an extraordinary chef. So that was a great experience. Um, and then Ned, Ned is a guy, you know, people are naturally talented in things. Ned was a, an artist, uh, a studio artist and a, 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 a furniture builder and a sculptor. Um, and, you know, he was making kind of a living, but he uh, really got uh, bit by the cooking bug and uh, started to do it. And he's, he just, he just cooks. So he really fundamentally with strong flavors, he just understands how to put like a small jazz combo of ingredients together. And uh, so that book, everybody who, who gets that book, it's called how to dress an egg. It tells me I'm never going to make a chicken another way. Oh, I mean, his roast chicken, right? It's sort of his signature. Yeah. So uh, um, everything in it, it gives you a simple way to make stuff. Tries to get what you like about home cooking in a restaurant, but how you adapt it in a restaurant so you can get it done quick and, and you know, unfuckable. And so that's kind of what the book is. And I really loved it. And he yeah. fishes. He's a fishing fool. Uh, we have a little group in New York City, uh, in Brooklyn, it's Marina. Uh, and, you know, we fish, you know, I guess six months of the year. And uh, Ned's one of them. Wow. That's, I mean, roast chicken is like one of my favorite meals because it is sort of homey and everyone makes it. But when you get a really, really good one, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's a whole different experience. Um, yeah. So I, I would agree. love to go to his restaurant one of these days. I don't know. Well, when you're in town, uh, you know where to find me. We'll go do it. Okay. That's a date. Now, the one thing I've been dying to ask you more about too, and, and you've talked to me a little bit about it over the years, is uh, the time you spent in Cuba working with the Hemingway family producing, was it a documentary? I know it was a film. It was a, it was a documentary. Um, what was that experience like? I think all of us writers have this um, sort of love for Hemingway's work and I can't imagine what it was like to be in it in Cuba with his family and going through all of his life and times. Uh, well, it was through Margot, uh, his granddaughter, who I knew. Uh, and uh, she, she, her husband, Bernard, her husband at the time, for Prochet, a spectacular character. Uh, they wanted to do this project about Hemingway in Key West in Cuba. And so they raised some money and uh, invited Jack Hemingway, who was uh, Ernest's oldest son, to come along. Well, he had kind of... So we started out in Key West and met some of his old friends. Um, and uh, I got a clipper ship. There was a clipper ship there, you know, big old American sailboat uh, from the era of the clipper ships. And uh, we sailed it to Havana uh, Harbor. And I knew that Jimmy Buffett had written an album uh, and a song called Havana Daydreaming. And I said, well, how would you like to drive this boat into Havana Harbor? So he signed on. And uh, so we went there. 
And so the inter interesting thing was after uh, Castro took power, um, Hemingway had a big, uh, he, he, he killed himself shortly thereafter. Uh, he had a big uh, art collection. And so there were negotiations and uh, the family was able to, to take their art and the government took over their, uh, you know, home and boat and stuff like that. So Jack, who spent, you know, a good portion of his childhood or an adolescence in Cuba, hadn't been back there since. Margot had never been. So it was a great return to the scenes of his youth for him. So he just overflowed with stories. And, you know, uh, communism, communism wasn't working out that well in Cuba. Uh, insofar as, you know, wasn't anything you could buy. You could buy the collected works of Lenin or, you know, a film of the Bolshoi Ballet, but there were no shoes. It was just a very deranged economy. Uh, and so when Jack got there, he he was like uh, a, an angel sent from the last good party people had been to. So all of Papa's old, they called him Papa, his, his old friend, called Hemingway Papa, all his old friends were there. And we just got endless stories about the old days, about the Civil War in Spain, which Hemingway uh, had written about. Um, and the, the, the day we were leaving, um, I, I needed some film, you know, coverage, some film coverage of the harbor. So I got the uh, the cameraman up early and we took these two cars and just filmed along there. Well, I find out, we get back to the hotel, that's the day the U.S. has invaded Grenada. So City Havana has gone crazy, just crazy. Um, you know, they still had, no, no matter what there was about the, between our governments, the Cubans still had an affectionate place for America because... In the Spanish-American War, we had uh, helped them achieve independence. So now Americans and Cubans were shooting at each other. It was like a national nervous breakdown. It was a crazy day. So we're supposed to leave that day. And uh, I mean, thank God I hadn't heard the news before we went out because, you know, <laughs> we got shot. So we get to the airport and uh, our planes canceled. And, you know, there we are, our luggage is on the tarmac and these guys with guns, you know, in camo. And this is like, you know, three months after Jonestown happened. Uh, so it, we looked like pictures I saw of those people on the tarmac, you know. Uh, and anyway, so there was no plane. Weirdest thing was you could pick up a phone and call anywhere in the world for free. It's before cell phones or anything. Just... He just picked up a phone. So I called Jimmy Buffett. And I said, we're totally f***ed. And he said, I'm sending a plane. So this we get this DC-3. And I knew we're not going to get shot because we're with Hemingways. And Heming they're, they're, that's, you know, yeah. you know, he's still worshipped there. So this DC-3 shows up. And uh, so we get on it. And you all have to run to the front of it when it takes off, because that's the way the load gets balanced. 
And we were told it was the plane that Roosevelt had sent to take um, Churchill to the Yalta conference in 1945. And I kind of believed that Winston Churchill used it because it had the biggest toilet seat I've ever seen. So I have a picture of me on the can smoking a big cigar, giving a V sign like uh, wow. Churchill. And uh, so that was that trip. So some years later, uh, Tom Rosenbauer, uh, Morbis, Morbis. Yep. Uh, invited me on a trip they were doing to Cuba down by the Bay of Pigs. So it had been some years since I'd been there. And what I noticed was things were a little a, a little bit looser. I never saw anybody partying the first time we were there. This time there was partying, there was music. Um, everybody was skinny, you know? I mean, that that's that's the thing I noticed. That, you know, once Russia started stopped buying um, sugar from them, uh, the economy bottom kind of fell out out of it. And there's a, somewhat of a free market, but not enough of one. So life seemed a little happier or a little freer, but tough. Yeah. Fishing was great. Fishing was great. Yeah, the fishing there is amazing. Um, did you meet Hemingway's captain? Uh, in Cuba, yeah. Yeah. Gregorio Fuentes. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we fished with him every day for, I guess, a couple of weeks. We brought a Bertram down from uh, Key West. Uh, George Hommel lent us one. And uh, we never caught a marlin, but we, we fished for all that time. And Gregorio, I think he was 80-something at the time, and his doctor had forbidden him to smoke or to drink. So my job as producer was to bring him a flask of rum and five cigars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, every day. Every day. And, uh, he, I guess the doctors were right because he only lasted till 106. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, he beat the odds. He was quite and a. We had, uh, we had a big. They, the way they used to fish for the the local to fish for marlin. I mean, part part of the reason Hemingway went there was you have this tremendous drop off. You know, within a hundred yards of the sh shore, right into the Gulf Stream. And uh, so they would take and like put a whole shark's head like on a giant hook and just drop it. And uh, I said, they catch marlin. And uh, they fish in these cement boats like they had in World War II, cemented floats. And so we had a big party in the town of Kohimar, which is where Gregorio lived and where Hemingway kept his boat. Um, and it was that was a, a real reunion. Marlin was stuffed with um, rock lobster, um, you know, like eight or nine feet long. This fish, and everybody, you know, had a couple uh, to drink, and just st stood up and gave toast. And like I said, it was the first party in fifty years, and uh, it was interesting day. What a really cool experience! And did what was the project? Did it ever get? finished or finalized what was the it, no i saw it didn't um a lot more money got spent than i know we spent and i don't know where, where that money was going <laughs> i i don't i have my suspicions um uh, i think it was going you know i i just don't know but it, it was it was hard those were cocaine days for a lot of people. So it was hard to get folks to concentrate. And I said, <laughs> I've done this part and I'm out. I want to go my life. You know, I was getting married and uh, I just wanted to 
live a saner life. Wow. Well, I mean, those are the kinds of stories that I find so interesting. And we try to get some of that flavor into Angler's Journal, the crazy adventures and places you end up because of fishing. And um, you've been all over, but it, it sounds like you're you're fishing more at home now as well. Well, it's, it's so good. You know, it really is so good around here. Um, in fact, I, I guess I fish more saltwater close to New York than I do trout anymore up in the Catskills. Um, you know, the, the really good fishing, it's kind of crowded. I mean, I think the West Branch, the Delaware, is as good uh, and as challenging dry fly fishing as any place I've ever fished. The Missouri, you know, Royal Seco in Argentina, the Itchen in England. It's if you can fish fish there uh, and catch fish, you can catch fish anywhere, but it gets crowded. Yeah. So. Well, and now I I do want to ask about book publishing too. How, you've published what twenty something books now? Yes, that's just so impressive. And you know, I get all these queries and letters from up and coming writers, and it's. The landscape has changed so much since Amazon and all these things have happened. And a lot of magazines, like the big three you were just talking about, you know, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Sports of Field, they're, they don't even publish anymore unless it's these weird, you know, SIPs that come out every now and again. So I'm just curious, for a, an up-and-coming writer, someone who really wants to publish a book, like how hard is it now? And where do you even begin? I don't know what to tell these kids. They all have good <laughs> intentions, but it's uh, it's not what it used to be, right? It's not. I mean, for for years, people, um, you know, young people would come to me um, and ask for some help getting started. And in those days, I could, you know, get someone in, in if they had the goods get someone a, an internship at the Times or at Food and Wine or at Field and Stream, um, paid or unpaid. Uh, but people can get their foot in the door. There aren't that many doors to get your foot in anymore. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of magazines, there's going to be fewer and fewer. I think, I think magazines like Angler's Journal which, you know, have sort of a select, passionate readership, I think those will continue. Um, but mass market magazines, you know, they're dropping one by one. Uh, so that's hard to do. Um, the book business is consolidating. There are fewer publishers to go to. Uh, editors are eager for books. That's 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 for sure. I mean, the thing to do is to write something, maybe not a whole book, write a few chapters and a proposal, uh, and see if you can get an agent who's interested in it. You need an agent to submit a book. That No one's going to look at it. Uh, just because it can get legally entangling if you don't have an agent. But, you know, they want, agents want somebody they can sell. And they know with a new author... It's not going to set the world on fire, but it could be the beginning of a new, new career. So my advice is, write. 
Now there are online uh, outlets and personally, I don't know how those eventually end up being money and Substack. I, I haven't had to do that, so I haven't done it. Um, so I don't know, but, uh, but I, I think all creatives are really challenged. I mean, we're living through what I call the digital Holocaust. I mean, the places that could support us, um, I mean, musicians, uh, you know, um, it's so much harder for them to make a dime in this era of streaming. So the ground is uh, shifting beneath our, beneath our feet. People will always want stories because that's how human beings are. How those get monetized and how you make a living at it, I, I don't have the answer to that in this new environment. Yeah, it's changing a lot. And, but I think you hit the nail on the head. If you're passionate about it, just keep writing. And if it's good, it will get noticed. And whether you sell it or it leads to something else, um, you know, I've, I've found just through writing my, it's not the most lucrative business, but the adventures and the places and the things I've done that I would have never been afforded to do otherwise. I mean, that's been such a gift. No. yeah yeah there is that but peter i won't take up any more of your time it's been so much fun chatting with you i always enjoy our talks and uh, look forward to publishing more of your work in angler's journal and for all of you out there pick up a copy of the catch of a lifetime moments of fly fishing glory and read all these great stories and uh and get out there and do some fishing thanks a million charlie